Welcome everybody to Celebration Church. Glad you can make it tonight for our Wednesday night Bible study. Going to be a good time. And um, we're going to just continue from the last time I was here. When I was here last time, we were in the book of Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles, turn open there and we'll be in the second chapter. We're going to start there now. So this is somewhat of a teaching series from Pastor Joe, only it's in parts, well separated from one another. So we'll be, I'll try to kind of refresh a little bit as to where we've been already so you kind of pick up where we're going to be tonight. The the study in transformation, spiritual transformation, that is what the whole epistle to the Ephesians is all about. The letter to the Ephesians written by Paul the Apostle. And uh, tonight we're in chapter 1. And uh, now that you're there, I think maybe I better turn over there too. Galatians, Ephesians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us. In Christ Jesus, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul prayed for the church in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. We learned last week that his prayer, or last time we were together, that his prayer consisted of thanksgiving for their transformed lives and a reminder to them of how he prayed for their spiritual growth, that they might know God better and that they might be enlightened in their minds and in their hearts as to how glorious this new life was in Christ, and that they might know the incredible power of God that had been made available to them through His personal presence in their lives. We saw that all of these things combined to bring about a transformation in their lives and in ours. All of those things combined together. And what that means on our part is persistent prayer, Uh, receiving enlightenment from the Holy Spirit and then feeding our brain knowledge and our spiritual knowledge with the Word of God. That if we'll participate in that way, remember Pastor Ed's message to us last Sunday, God's going to do His thing, but we get to participate with God, don't we? We get to do our part too. And our part is spending time with Him, reading His Word, and then allowing His Holy Spirit to come and speak with us. As we get close to God... God begins to do what this book is all about. He begins to transform us. 
what we read today goes in a little bit different direction. Because last time we talked, it was all about Paul's prayer for us. This week we're going to see the beginning of Paul's actual teaching to the Ephesians. And he starts out by reminding them of something. Uh, You were that, but now you're this. This is the vocabulary of transformation. And we see it a lot in the New Testament. Once I was lost, now I'm found. Just like that song, Amazing Grace. You all know that song. And that's the story of the new covenant. The man or woman who can look back and remember these kinds of things that he talks about in chapter 2 here, you can say of that man or woman, they have gone through a transformation. They have seen it. But sometimes, even though we've gone through the transformation, we need reminding. And Paul felt that it was time to remind the Ephesians about these things. As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And then he goes on there. Paul describes by way of reminder what the Ephesian believers used to be. Remember, it was a pagan city in a pagan culture. No concept of God. You know, it was, it was a mixture of Greek and Roman mythology and Roman uh, 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 emperor worship. It was just... Totally pagan, totally foreign. The gospel didn't have a clue. Remember what you used to be. It's all in the past tense here, isn't it? In these verses. You were dead. In which you used to live. You followed the ways of the world. You were, by nature, objects of wrath. Sometimes, you know, it is helpful for us to be reminded about what we used to be. If you're a Christian today, you probably remember at least a little bit of uh, what life was like before you met Jesus Christ by faith. You probably also remember the fact that somehow God spoke to your heart and then he began to draw you into this new life. And for some of you, it may have happened quickly. And for others of you, it may have been a process that you went through, through a certain period of time. But still, you're going to remember what life was like, kind of like the before and after part, and you know that the after is always better than the before. (laughs) And everybody said amen to that. I remember what the before part was like for me. It was not pretty. Let's ask another question on top of Paul's reminder here. Why do we need to be reminded? Why not just live in the present? Let's not think about the past. Let's not dirty our minds and our thinking with what we were like before. And that's a legitimate question because I've heard messages and I've read books that encourage us to to go the opposite direction. Don't think about the past. Don't think what, you know, the devil could use your past and he'll bring that against you and cause all kinds of unnecessary guilt. And Well, we don't want that in our lives. That's just a lot of trouble we don't need, so don't think about it anymore. And then he's going to just try to load you up with all this false guilt and get you believing you never were forgiven in the first place yes we've heard that and I agree with that and I believe that our primary occupation needs to be in the present not in the past Paul's was Paul Paul for some reason just he just he spent most of his time in the present but he did go back to the past this being an example he felt that it was necessary to remind them of their past here. And in chapter 3, 
he goes, he goes on and he, you're going, we're going to hear him speak of his past and how God had mercy on us, on him. He does it again in a very different way over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. He said there, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. You don't hear many books written like that, do you? But Paul wrote about himself saying, yep, this is what I used to be. So he reminded himself, he's reminding us of our past here as well and saying, you need to think about this every once in a while. You need to remember what it was like and then remember how good you've got it right now and glory in that. We call it a reality check today. The language of Ephesians is very lofty language. It describes the royal estate to which you and I have come uh, through Christ. It describes us as seated with Christ in heavenly places and that we are recipients of his divine power and knowledge known and experienced by no other beings in the universe. Just believers in Christ know about these things. It's It's amazing. But amid this lofty language of Paul, he inserts for your benefit and mine a reality check. Remember where you came from. Because I remember Paul, I remember where I came from. And it helps me appreciate what God has done for me. I read this prayer the other day. It kind of reminds me of my personal capacity for sin and how bad I really need Jesus. Dear God, so far today I've done all right. I haven't lost my temper I haven't gossiped, I haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I am very thankful for that, God. But in a few minutes, I'm going to get out of bed, God. And from then on, I'm going to need a lot of help. Anybody identify with that one? (laughs) That's the prayer of somebody who's had a reality check. Maybe you identify with that. This person remembers where he came from and what he is capable of doing without God's grace. There is within him this gentle but persistent reminder that although things are all right today, right now, they didn't used to be. And of course, we're all thankful we weren't, we're not there anymore. So let's take a look real briefly at where Paul says we were. And then we're going to go on and not revisit that anymore in this study of Ephesians. First of all, he said, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. This meaning we were spiritually dead. Not physically dead, but spiritually dead. Unable to see or hear or relate to God. Having no interest in God. Self-absorbed, self-reliant, self-righteous, self-indulgent, self-opinionated, self-satisfied, self-sufficient, self-centered, and self-motivated. Hmm, sound familiar. And when the self rules a person this way, as it does in all of us, until we meet Christ, that person is numb or dead to the influence of God in his life and the influence of God's love. It's just the way it works. You can't feel the presence of Christ when you're self 
when, you're, when yourself is in control of your life. And then next he says that we followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Well, you know, when you think about that one, that's a pretty sobering phrase, isn't it? We were followers when all the time we thought we were leaders. <laughs> he said you were following the prince of the power of the air. You were following the principles. Oh, wait a minute, I'm in charge here. I'm leading. I'm not following anybody. <laughs> Paul says, oh no, you, you are following We thought that we were determining our own destinies when all of the time someone and something else was really in control. That someone Paul describes to us as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Hmm, wonder who that is. That ruler, that spirit, the devil, was at work in us because of our disobedience. We thought we were the leaders. We thought we were the chief. Uh Uh-uh. He was leading us around by a ring in our nose. And just as a reminder, and I, I need to cover this base for everybody tonight, there is no absolute freedom, folks. There is no such thing as 100% self-contained, self-determining individual. You may think that there is, but... uh, uh, that that concept, which has become more and more popular over the last probably century or so, is not true. Nobody's totally free. We're all tied somewhere. You're going to serve somebody. Remember Bob Dylan's song? You got to serve somebody. You, it may be the devil. It may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. We all lived among them, Paul adds, too according to him. And as we lived among them, we did what they did. We gratified the cravings of our sinful nature and we followed its desires and thoughts. Here's an easy one for us all to remember. Sinners do what sinners do. God spoke to Judah through the prophet Jeremiah and said, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard its spots, neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. It's just the way it is. Sinners do what sinners do. Again, that word follow. In verse 1, we were following the ways of this world. And here Paul reminds us we were following the cravings of our sinful nature. We're never in charge there if Jesus Christ isn't in charge. We're not. So here were two strikes against us, and in both cases, we were following, not leading. We're not in charge. We just think we are. And because we were following the wrong things all the time, we might get the impression that we were enslaved or in bondage that way, unable to really break out of that life pattern. And if you get that impression from what Paul is saying here, you're absolutely right. Being dead to God like we were meant one thing. We were helplessly enslaved to the dictates of the spirit of the world and of our own sinful nature. And Paul wrote the same thing to the Romans. 
He said in Romans 6, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey them as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin... You wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You've been set free from sin and now have become slaves to righteousness. Notice, you make the transition from slavery to one thing to servanthood to another, but there's no total 100% freedom. I'm sorry. We all got to serve somebody. As distasteful and ugly as that word slave is to us today, It is the language that Paul used in describing all of us before Jesus Christ comes into our lives and transforms us. And even after our transformation in Christ, we remain servants. Can't get away from that. You just can't. And finally, Paul's description of our pre-Christ lives ends with this. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. This phrase, by nature, means by birth. F.F. Bruce explains this for us. This common plight of humanity, Jews and Gentiles alike, has been inherited, according to Paul, uh, from that one man through whom sin came into the world and so death spread to all human beings inasmuch as all sinned. So from Adam, sin spread throughout the whole world. We inherited it. And we were by nature, by nature, by birth, objects of wrath. The word wrath simply means condemnation. And so we are all, every human being, subject to the condemnation of God because of what we have inherited from Adam, who is that one man that Paul refers to there. And just like I inherited certain physical and personality traits from my mom and dad, so also came this disposition towards sin in me. And that goes all the way back to Adam. And that disposition places me in great spiritual danger. Before we can really appreciate the transformation that has happened in our lives, we have to appreciate how very broken we are. And, And what we were before we came to Christ, sin has ruined us, you guys. It's ruined us. It's been passed down from generation to generation. And this has resulted in man being just a shadow of what he used to be before God. The transforming power of sin in us has been complete. It has done its work. It has reduced us to a shell of what we used to be, ladies and gentlemen. It's it's a tragedy. And we grope in the darkness and we try to reappropriate that former perfection that we had and we're, it's just a futile, it, it can't be done. You can't find it. I don't care where you go looking. You have this in you that you, you know you're, you should be a better person than this and then you go try to find it and it's not there. It's because it's been destroyed. Sin destroyed it. You can't get it back. With one exception. Brian McLaren wrote this, his illustration. He has a sermon called Sin 101. (laughs) If life is a machine, then sin is a bad gear that makes the machine malfunction. 
If life is a kingdom, then sin is a terrorist movement in the kingdom. If life is a family, then sin is a feud between family members. If life is a body, then sin is an untreated disease that poisons the whole system. If life is a river, then sin is mercury or arsenic that pollutes it. If life is a garden, then sin is the army of slugs that eat your tomatoes. Boy, they were busy the, uh, this summer too, let me tell you. I bet you had the same thing with all the rain. If life is a computer, then sin is a virus that destroys your hard drive. Grrr. There's a new book out. It's called The Seven Sins of Highly Defective People. Rick Ezell wrote this. He talks about a new recall that he just got in the mail in that book. Here's the recall. You know about Toyota recalling all their cars. Okay, this is where he's going with this. The maker of all human beings is recalling all units manufactured regardless of make or year due to the serious defect in the primary and central component, the heart. This is due to a malfunction in the original prototype units resulting in the reproduction of the same defect in all subsequent units. (laughs) This defect has been technically termed subsequential internal non-morality or more commonly known as SIN. And its primary symptom is a lapse of moral judgment. If one is susceptible to loss of direction, foul vocal emissions, lack of peace and joy, or selfish behavior, then one is inflicted with this defect. The manufacturer, who is neither liable nor at fault for this defect, is providing factory-authorized repair and service free of charge to, to correct this SIN defect at numerous locations throughout the world. That's what I mean. It ha- you got to bring the car into the shop, right? Or the defect is not going to be corrected. That's why we're here, amen? Of course, we know that this recall is fictional. Of course, it's not. But in reality, that's exactly what's been going on. God has recalled us. He knows that we're all beyond salvage. He knows there's a burn notice that's been put out on every one of us out of here and that is where the bible and the recall notice differ in reality there can be no repairs done in human hearts god has to start from scratch you guys the human heart the human spirit the human personality have to literally be recreated Sin has been that destructive to us that we have to be entirely recreated from the inside out. That is why Jesus told us that if we want to see heaven, we have to be born. Exactly. The old model has to be scrapped and the new model brought in for the very reasons Paul describes here in verses 1 to 3. When we say, guys, that we need spiritual transformation... This is how desperately we need it. It's a major recall. And he's got to start from scratch. Wow. Verses verses 4 through 10, which we already read. First 4 begins with the word but. And that is a big word here. Y'all were lost in your sins. You were beyond salvage. But, here's the good news. Paul paints a pretty desperate situation in the first three verses. Here's the good part. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Beyond salvage, God who is rich in mercy, and he is, isn't he? 
Once again, this is the language of transformation used throughout the New Testament. To be made alive when we were dead in transgressions, that's not a small miracle, is it? That's a big miracle. Transformation doesn't get any better than that. In verse 19 of chapter 1, Paul reminded believers of an incomparably great power given to us by God and that this was the same power that God used in raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And now we see that this same resurrection power is at work in us because we who were dead in transgressions, spiritually dead, as we said earlier, have been made alive by that same power God used in raising his own son son from the dead not only did God raise his son from the dead by that power he also seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority power and dominion and every title that can be given and wonder of wonders look what Paul says about us in verse 6 and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The biggest, the biggest brag that God is going to have throughout the ages is look what I did with these unsalvageable people. Look at the life I brought in them from death. Oh man, that's going to be the greatest glory in heaven throughout eternity is when we all turn and reflect on what God did in us when he raised us up when there was no hope. Church is a great place for hopeless people and hopeless cases. It's a great place. If you're feeling hopeless tonight, you're in the right place. And you're talking to the right Jesus. Raised us up. In chapter 1, Paul spoke of God's incomparably great power toward us. And here in chapter 2, he also uses that word incomparable regarding the riches of his grace. Both God's power and God's grace are made available to us through Christ when God brings about our transformation. And just like this clever lawyer in a courtroom, Paul was building this rock-solid case for the Ephesian Christians in these verses. And there must have been doubts among them. That's probably why he wrote this letter. There's probably doubts in them about their faith and about how they appeared in the midst of all of this spiritual darkness in Ephesus that surrounded them. And we talked about that earlier. It was really bad. And I'm sure they had days when the Ephesian Christians wondered if they had in, indeed, if they'd had any change at all in themselves and if they were really Christians and maybe they struggled with temptation and maybe they gave in to temptation from time to time and maybe there were pretenders and posers who leaked into the church and they caused the testimony of the church to be dragged through the dirt. There must have been some dark, dark days for those guys back then. Well, let's not think that they were unique just for us. I mean, they, we go through that stuff today. We're all tempted. There are posers who make their way into church and, and, and cause all kinds of damage today. Well, they have the same stuff going on then. They needed encouragement. That's why we've got to constantly be reminded over and over and over, this is what is true of us. We're not dirtbags. We are gloriously saved people. We're seated in heavenly places. As far as God's concerned, we're seated in heavenly places with Him. He wants us to remember that stuff. We have been transformed by God's power. Amen. And grace. We are different 
from what we were before. If you have any doubts, go back to these verses. They describe you as a believer in Jesus Christ. They describe your transformation. They reaffirm that God is for you. He's not against you. They shout out loud to you that you have been changed, Christian. You have been recreated on the inside and that you never are going to be the same again if you've touched Jesus Christ by faith. I don't care what you've done since then. You've been changed. You're different. You can't go back and undo that. Read verse 1 to 7 in this chapter over and over again when you're down, when you're tempted, when you fail and you re, and, and, and when you've gone through all that stuff. Why? Because you can reaffirm to yourself who you really are. It's a reality check for you. These are not fantasized descriptions of some fictional character. This didn't come from the fevered, overactive imagination of Paul the Apostle. These are truths. They're true about you. And finally, we read next one of the great classic verses in the Bible. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. If there ever was a culture or people group who needed this verse, let me tell you something, and I've been all over this country of the United States, it is people here in Wisconsin who need to hear that verse. Since I've lived here, I've discovered we live in a culture that has grown up to believe that if you work hard enough at your faith, if you go to church enough times, if you pray the right things a certain number of times every day, if you're a good person and if you work hard, if you follow in mom and dad's religious footsteps, if you remain hooked up to the right denomination and you do your best, then you will, without a doubt, make it into heaven when you die. That is the culture in Wisconsin. And Wisconsin needs to hear these verses. Because they don't agree with what I just said. And it is that very philosophy, it is that very philosophy that ruins people. And it keeps them away from God. It doesn't bring them closer to God. Because they miss the whole point of the good news of Christ. The good news, the gospel, has nothing to do with man working himself back into favor with God by performing a certain lifelong routine of religious looking things. Come on! That's not what the gospel says. You Remember, you're, an, you're not salvageable, guys. None of us are salvageable. You can't work your way back into God's good graces because we're ruined. That's what the Bible says about us. There isn't anything there to give back to God. The gospel says nothing about joining anything, any club, so that you can get into heaven. The gospel of Christ is clear. By grace we are saved, not by works. Our salvation is all about what God does in us. It doesn't have anything to do with self-improvement. You can't improve your way into heaven. You've got to be brought there by grace. There's nothing left in you or me or anyone that can be salvaged. I have to be scrapped and then by God's grace he starts over again. And then I have to be rebuilt from the inside out. A sinner walking into church on Sunday morning still walks out of that church a sinner when it's over unless he's been transformed by the grace of God. A sinner going down in the water of baptism may go down a dry sinner, come up a wet sinner. You've heard Pastor Mark and Pastor Layden talk about that. You've got to be transformed. A sinner eating bread and grape juice on Sunday morning remains a sinner with bread and juice in his tummy. Unless he's transformed by the grace of God. 
Transformation is everything when it comes down to our relationship with God. That's why this whole letter deals with transformation. Paul knew how important it is. Transformation is everything for us. If that happens, oh man, if we allow God to transform us on the inside, then there's hope. Then there's hope for us. Hallelujah. Amen. We have no hope without that. That's why Paul said what he said here is by grace you're saved, not by religious looking works. Come on. Verse 10 finishes this section, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Notice that this verse 10 is placed after verse 8 and 9. Grace comes first and then works. Okay? Even the good works we do after we've been transformed are not just good ideas that we come up with, even though we may think sometimes, oh, that was a good idea. I'm really proud of myself. God's going, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh. You were transformed by my grace and my power. And uh, if you got any good ideas, it's because I gave them to you. Amen. And so the good works we do after we've been transformed are not just good ideas we came up with. They are a string of preordained good works assigned to us by God, even though we might not realize it. Stuff that he came up with a long time ago before we were even in existence. There can't be any boasting by human beings. In the kingdom of God, don't look for some awards ceremony, guys, based on some litany of your own good works. I mean, that's not going to happen, not on this earth anyway. Yeah, crowns in heaven, mansions in heaven, rewards, lots of it going on in heaven, but we're not there yet, are we? Okay, so that's coming. I am amazed at this never-ending list of award ceremonies that created by movie stars and musicians, created by them for them. I sit and scratch my head. Where do these things, where do they come up with this stuff? The Emmys, the Oscars, the Grammys, the Golden Globes, People's Choice Awards, the Cannes, the Sundance, the Tonys. Thank you for getting a few. Lots of trophies on my wall in the living room. For what? You know, we are, we are really good, aren't we, at working hard and achieving some success, and then we welcome the awards that come with that success, and of course that should be. That should be our our lot. But why are we surprised then when we discover that those things turn out to be empty and without any fulfillment for us? We we are surprised. They don't have any meaning. Why? Because that's not the plan. We insist on, on this diet of cotton candy when God offers us some real food and we turn down the real food. We'd rather work our way into God's favor through some string of well-intentioned good deeds and then settle for that blessing and favor that the good deeds come. We'd rather do that than settle for His grace and His favor. I don't get it. I'm that way. I, I tend toward that. It happens. We've got to watch that. That's not what He wants for us. But that is the way things work in this kingdom of God. It's all by grace. It's all by faith. Not that you're left out of the picture, like what Pastor Ed said. No, we're cooperating, participating with God in this wonderful plan. But in the end, it's all, we're going to look back and we're going to say, wow, he did that. Praise God. It doesn't have a whole lot to do with us doing all these good things. If you'll do it his way, 
If you will do it his way, you will be transformed and you will find life and satisfaction. If you do it your way, you'll meet with frustration and disappointment and emptiness over and over again. My prayer for you today is that you will reach out to Jesus Christ by faith, that you will ask forgiveness, receive the riches of His grace and His mercy, and then begin to experience this incomparable power in your life. Let me finish with this story. I read it the other day. Uh, Patrick Lawler, there's a guy named Patrick Lawler, he had a toothache. Tried painkillers and ice packs for a week and nothing brought him any relief for his toothache. Finally, Patrick went to the dentist's office and the dentist took an x-ray and guess what he found? This is for real. That nail had penetrated the roof of Patrick's mouth and had gone into his brain six days earlier He was a construction worker and his nail gun backfired at the job site one day and he didn't even notice where the nail had gone. But he he did start complaining of a toothache and blurry vision for some reason. Isn't that wild? After the dentist found the nail embedded in Patrick's skull, it was successfully removed through four hours of surgery at Denver Hospital. Can you picture what must have been going through Patrick's mind that week? You know, something just doesn't feel right in my mouth. (laughs) What's going on with my tooth? Why can't I see straight? Did you ever have a nagging feeling like that? What is going on? Something's wrong. It seems so easy, doesn't it, that we should realize that there's something wrong and that we should figure out what the problem is, but we often do not even understand the obvious Shouldn't Patrick have known that there was a four-inch nail in his skull? (sighs) Obviously, it wasn't as easy as we might think for Patrick. And sin, guys, is the same way. It's the same way. You know something's wrong, and then you try to fix it, and you take painkillers, and you apply ice packs, and for some reason the pain just stays there, along with this disconcerting feeling that something more serious really is going on, but you just don't know what it is. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the voice of God, and sin is the problem. As you look at Patrick's x-ray tonight... Please take some time to remember as we finish in prayer. Remember what you came from, Christians, and what God has done in you. If you feel that God may be whispering to you tonight and that something's wrong on your insides, maybe this would be a great time to listen. There may be something right there staring you right in the face that He's trying to show you that's making you uncomfortable, that He's trying to maybe push you on to the next level with Him, receive more grace from Him. Maybe you've been straining too hard trying to do this thing in your own power instead of letting the Spirit of God come in and change you on the inside. Maybe you've been neglecting your relationship with Him and not taking the time with Him. And as a result, there's this distance that's been created and you're not feeling that power and that grace from Him at this point. Tonight would be a great time to restore and renew that just by simply saying, God, I need you. 
Please help me. Come back. Help me. God has x-ray vision, you know. He can see if you've got a nail embedded in your skull. He can see the things that are wrong inside of you too. He's the only one that can fix it, by the way. Let's pray. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this opportunity to be together tonight. We ask your blessing on your word and all the things that we've talked about. Help us to learn and understand and grow closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.